and welcome to Star Trek and the Jews, the monthly podcast that uses Star Trek to boldly explore the worlds of Jews and Judaism. This month, we're bringing you a two-part episode looking at Captain David Gold, lead character of the Starfleet Corps of Engineers ebook series, and arguably the most prominent Jewish character in Trek. In part one, Josh will be discussing the character and Jewish children's literature with librarian and podcaster Heidi Rabinowitz. In part two, Josh will be chatting with Glenn Howman, Aaron Rosenberg, and Keith DeCandido, three Trek authors who helped bring David Gold to life. Heidi Rabinowitz is the host of The Book of Life, a podcast about Jewish kid lit. Heidi is a Judaica librarian and the director of the Feldman Children's Library at Congregation B'nai Israel in Boca Raton, Florida. Heidi is everywhere in the world of Jewish children's literature. She's a founding member of the PJ Library Book Selection Committee. She's been involved with the Sydney Taylor Book Award, the Association of Jewish Libraries, and she's the co-creator of Jewish Book Carnival and Jewish Kidlet Mavens. Heidi, I'm so excited to welcome you to Star Trek and the Jews. Thank you. Heidi, maybe you can tell me a little bit about how you first came to the world of uh, Jewish children's literature. Oh, okay. So I was a children's librarian. Uh, that was destiny. <laughs> I, I always knew I wanted to do something with children's literature. I thought at first that I would get involved with publishing, but I couldn't figure out how you break into publishing because it seemed sort of like a closed loop, like you had to already know somebody in publishing or be in New York, or, and I couldn't figure out how you got started. And then I learned I was actually sitting in front of a public library, a Carnegie library in Oberlin, Ohio, where I went to college. And it occurred to me that I could work for a library as a different way to work with children's books. And then I found out that it's a very straightforward path to become a librarian. You go to an American Library Association accredited university, you get a degree, and somebody will hire you. So I was like, all right, I'll just do that instead. And then I get to work with the actual children uh, and see their responses to the books. So that's actually more fun, I think. I worked in the public library for several years, and then an opening came up in a synagogue library that uh, needed a librarian. Congregation B'nai Israel in Boca Raton, Florida, had a library that they had established, but the person who was running the library was not actually a librarian. She was just a nice lady who offered to be the librarian. And when she left, they decided to upgrade to an actual librarian. And the boss was asking everybody, do you know any librarians? And somebody said, oh, yes, my, my friend is a librarian. What if we call her up? And so that was how I ended up getting the position in the synagogue. And I've now been a synagogue librarian for most of my career, much longer than I was a public librarian. It's actually a really wonderful gig because you get to know people in a deeper way. You know, you're part of a, a specific community in a way that's not necessarily the case when you're serving the entire town. Because we focus on the children, it's a children's library. So I'm serving the students in the very large preschool and the students in the religious school. And so I get to see them year after year as they grow and kind of get to know their reading taste and, you know, form form a closer bond. And I get to upgrade my own Judaic knowledge because I came into it not actually having that much background other than just what I picked up growing up. But I didn't have a lot of formal knowledge. I didn't have any Jewish formal education at all. I hadn't gone to Hebrew school. So I've learned a lot on the job, and that's been interesting too. That's such an interesting point you make about 
the relationship. I grew up spending a lot of time in libraries, public school libraries, synagogue library, but the only librarian that I ever had a relationship with was the synagogue librarian. And I know we have a lot of Beth Sedek listeners in Toronto who, who will remember the, the late Mrs. Brown from uh, the 80s and 90s at Beth Sedek. And, and she was someone who like had so much affection for us. And, and just like you said, was like thinking about books that we might like and stories we might want to hear. And yeah, that's that's such a, an interesting point. So we always ask people this, tell me about your Star Trek experience. Well, I do consider myself a Trekkie. I was a Star Trek watcher my whole life. You know, it was on in reruns. It was just kind of there. And so I was familiar with it. And then when I was a teenager, I was staying overnight at my aunt's house, and my aunt was kind of more of a nerd than my parents. And she had this book that I have right here. She had this book, Star Trek, The New Voyages, Volume 2. And I just picked it up off the shelf, and it was the first fan fiction that I ever read. Now, this is officially published fan fiction. But that's basically what it is, because it was, you know, going into the motivations of the characters mm-hmm. and what are they thinking. And and I had never encountered that before, where you sort of delve into the backstory of characters who you already know from TV. And I thought, that's so cool. So that basically turned me into an instant Trekkie. I started going to Star Trek conventions. I branched out to Doctor Who. I'm probably more of a Whovian at this point than a Trekkie, but, you know, I still maintain those roots. That's such a cool connection and perfectly fitting for a librarian. And I think that really is like one of the definitely in the first dozen or so of the Star Trek books that are out there. Wow. So you and I both read some uh, some Star Trek for today featuring some Jewish characters. But I think before we discuss them, it might be helpful to to give our listeners sort of a, the state of the Jewish kid-lit world these days, what you see as the big trends, and really what, what you as both a librarian and a reader are, are looking for, uh, especially in Jewish young adult fiction. The first question, because you always have to answer a question with a question. <laughs> in the tradition of our ancestors. In the tradition of our ancestors. The first question is, what is a Jewish book? And this is something that I discuss with my colleagues over and over. What is the definition of a Jewish book? And it can range from anything from very casual Jewish representation, like a character's last name is Levine, all the way to characters who are engaging in Jewish activities, to stories that really bring to life Jewish history or concepts. So, you know, there's a wide range of what can be considered a Jewish book. And it's not necessarily Jewish authorship, although that's another definition. Personally, I I don't think that Jewish authorship alone is enough to make a book Jewish, but some people do feel that way. And I do feel also that there are many very good Jewish books written by non-Jewish authors who have done their homework. Hmm. Jewish children's literature as a genre basically began in a, you know, we had Bible stories since forever. Torah stories, Midrash, but began as specifically written children's books, basically in 1935 with the Katantan stories, which are basically like a Jewish Thumbelina kind of, you know, little miniature person. And those are by Sadie Rose Weilerstein. But it really went mainstream and started to reach non-Jewish readers in 1951 with the publication of All of a Kind Family by Cindy Mm. Taylor. And that was really the first breakthrough Jewish book that was not only aimed at a Jewish readership and that other people enjoyed too. And there are many people from many different backgrounds who have that as a beloved 
book that they remember from their childhood. And it's, it's still read today. So that's the beginnings of the genre, the staples over the years of the genre. So it's basically, it's less than a century old as a genre, but the staples are holiday books, Holocaust books, books about the shtetl and immigration, folk tales. So those are some of the things that we see over and over. Yeah. I will mention that I have a bee in my bonnet about Holocaust books because unfortunately they make up 50% or more of the Jewish children's books that get published each year. It's kind of lopsided. I'm not saying that we don't need them, but we don't need to have 50% of our books mm-hmm. be about that topic. Enough already. The areas of growth that we're seeing now and that I really want to see continue are we're starting to get more contemporary stories rather than just historical. We're starting to see more casual representation, like I mentioned about, you know, a family named Levine, so that you can be enjoying a a perfectly secular story, but still feel represented. We are seeing a lot more Jewish diversity. And by that, I guess I mean intersectionality. So we're seeing Jews of color, LGBT Jewish characters, so Jewish and in a lot more stories. We are seeing different types of genres represented, like more rom-coms, graphic novels, formerly taboo topics like illness and death are starting to show up. And not in a depressing way, more in a honest way and a way of let's just explore this and understand this better and model coping mechanisms. The things that I would wish for would be to continue those trends, but also for more humor. It's kind of funny, you know, we are known as a people for our humor and for the many, many Jewish comedians who who become well-known stars, but somehow that doesn't translate into children's books as much as you would think. You know, there are many interpretations of the Helm stories, but it's a very old world kind of humor and it doesn't always quite make sense to modern children. And uh, so just sort of that whole Yiddish kite kind of humor, it hasn't quite translated. I've been reading my daughter recently and it's really a book that I bought for me. Lemony Snicket's The Letka Who Wouldn't Stop Screaming and it's I like, here is finally a Jewish screaming. book of hers. Like we get the PJ ones and like they're they're charming, but here's a book that I can like enjoy and do the voices and whoever, whatever other adult is in the room is always giggling along and it's terrific. Yes, very I love hard that. to find. And Lemony Snicket is a good example of sort of um, casual Jewish representation, or even stealth Jewish representation. Right. Like you don't you if you weren't somebody who recognizes that it's Jewish content, it would just go right past you. But if you are Jewish, you get a little giggle out of it. Yeah, that's another uh, form of representation is when it's just kind of snuck in there as an inside Mm -hmm. joke. Other things that I would love to see, I would love to see more humor. I would love to see more sci-fi and fantasy. Uh, We are starting to get more fantasy. We still need to catch up on the sci-fi. I would like to see more books that emphasize just joyful Jewish living rather than the traumas that we've endured. Mm -hmm. And what I'd really love to see is more non-Jewish people reading Jewish books. You know, as I said with All of a Kind Family, that that certainly happens, but I definitely would like us not to be siloed. And I think that's true for all the different diverse books out there. They are never written only for the people who are featured within the book. They are always meant to be read by the entire community, and that includes Jewish books. 
So we read two stories about Captain David Gold, one of the very few Jewish characters in Star Trek. We've spoken about uh, on this show a number of times how, you know, with with some bendy exceptions and really if you stretch it there are not very many jewish characters at least explicitly jewish characters in uh, film and television star trek but novels and short stories and comics many more uh, and he's certainly among the most prominent in some ways now that i hear you explain the state of the jewish children's literary world i wonder if we did a disservice by choosing creative coupling because it's from a whole series of books where uh, and they're sh- they're short young adult novels. Uh, they were released monthly in sort of a sixty to eighty page format as ebooks, and and later put together an anthology. And in most of them, he's he's just like your typical Starfleet captain off solving their problem of the, of the week. Which the premise of of this series is that they're an engineering ship that goes and fixes little technical problems, and that he works with kind of a younger crew who are not so experienced and sort of lovable misfits. And the one that we read, Creative Coupling, is is the the one that, that goes pretty deep into the Jewish stuff with um with some mixed results. So there's sort of an A plot and a B plot. And the A plot is that his crew are off on a holodeck misadventure, testing out an experimental a uh, new starship design, training some cadets, and various holodeck things go wrong in the in the way that things go wrong on the holodeck. The B plot that I thought was definitely the more Jewish one, very explicitly Jewish, is that David Gold's granddaughter is getting married to the son of the Klingon ambassador. His wife, who is a rabbi, Rabbi Rachel Gilman, is involved in this process, his whole family. This is kind of the story that brings in his whole family, extended family, for the first time. I should say also that I only read these books <laughs> recently. Um, I did read Star Trek books as a kid, but this isn't one that I that I really came up with. What were your first impressions of this story and the Jewish representation in it? Well, first of all, I just want to say that I think that the Klingons are basically Jewish. <laughs> yes. So I know you had an episode about the Ferengi representing Jewishness, and that totally made sense. But the Klingons are really big on tradition, and they're really big on ritual, and they speak this guttural language. What a hooks. Which actually, I just watched an interview with. I forget his name now, but the guy who invented the Klingon language. Oh, who is Mark Okrand, yeah. Yes. And who um, said that he was trying specifically to not make it sound too much like Yiddish, <laughs> and he kept getting complaints that it sounded just like Yiddish. I just watched, because of your Hebrew school homework, I, I've been trying to do my homework, and so I just watched recently You Are Cordially Invited. Yeah. And um, so I would also say that Klingons tend to discourage others from joining the tribe at least at first. And so that also seems kind of Jewish. So the idea of combining Klingons and Jews is just, you know, it it makes perfect sense. So overall, I thought this story was really entertaining. The idea of a Klingon Jewish wedding is just a ton of fun. And I think it really works because of those parallels. Like you can really see the combination. Mm -hmm. Uh, I think like a Christian Klingon wedding just would not be as entertaining. Plus, you'd have to wait four hours between the ceremony and the reception, drive somewhere (laughs) else. Right. So, um, but I think in terms of the representation of Judaism, 
it was rather stereotyped. Yeah. And I think that it kind of had that same feeling like when you watch old Star Trek and you sort of, you're like, okay, fine, you know, things were stereotyped back then and I'll just take it with a grain of salt and enjoy the story um, for what it is. It was, it gave me that kind of feeling. Sort of, you know, there's a certain amount of outdated mores that you can accept in your Star Trek and then at some point it just gets to be too much like I cannot watch Mud's Women anymore. It's just too much. Yeah. Even though I had it basically memorized as a teenager because I didn't know any better. You know, so I, I enjoyed it until my consciousness was raised and then I was like, this is this is nuts. I can't do this. But so I felt that it was fairly stereotypical and also fairly misogynistic. The bride is kind of a Jap. Yeah. The there's this whole trope of manipulative and unavailable Jewish wives. So mm-hmm. even the rabbi wife is kind of oddly manipulative. Uh, the mother-in-law is pushy and loud and tasteless. She's a hypochondriac. Yeah. Uh, you know, classic. And then the the whole you know the the manipulative wives go along with the beleaguered Jewish or Klingon husbands who are being bossed around by their wives. So there's there's all of that gender stuff. And then also there was something about, I forget where it was in the story, but there was the idea of reform Judaism as being lesser, less valid, less robust rather than just different. Yeah. So I felt like a lot of the gender attitudes were kind of old fashioned and also fed into a lot of Jewish stereotypes. Mm-hmm. You know, there were sort of like two parts. Definitely, I completely agree with you on the portrayal of women i think to the extent that that the characters are stuck in like mid-century new york white ashkenazi which like is a very small slice of the jewish world but like an oversized part of jewish representation in media i guess i would concede that like this is written by a person who was born in the mid 20th century who is a Jew from New York and edited by a person of the same age who lives in New York and married to a Jewish woman who, to the extent that people are writing what they know, I give some lenience on that. Yeah, there were there were things in it that I that I liked about the Jewish representation. And there were things that I that I didn't like. There were there were a few things that just sort of like just needed like a little a little pickup because they got flagged to me as as not reading authentic, like using like certain Yiddish words in a way that was like a little bit off. Like they use mumser in a way that I didn't think fit with the meaning of the word or um, referring to Bible as like scripture. I just thought was like a very Christian-y way of saying mm-hmm. it. Mm-hmm. And yet there were there were things in it that felt authentic to me. And there is a piece of David Gold where I can see how he's what I imagine a 24th century Jewish Star Trek captain to potentially be like. And it is not the stereotype piece. It's um, There's a line where he's talking to the ambassador. I'm confused by one thing, and this is said to him. I had always believed you people do not have any spiritual tradition. And his response is, no, not at all. There's not one faith. Some have plenty, some have none. Regardless, it's up to each individual. We recognize the equality of all religions and welcome them all. In the case of our family, it's Judaism. If you ask 10 humans, you probably get 10 other answers, um, which is like a big gap that's sort of missing in, in Star Trek. And I think that he does get across something that I think is missing in 
many representations of, of Jews in fiction, which is that he has this this blended identity, ethnic culture, family, tradition, religion. He, he's not all in one camp or all in another. And he's like moored by his tradition, but also willing to be flexible on it, which sort of resolves the interpersonal conflicts at the end. Yeah, I agree. I think that that's, that was a very good answer that he gave. And I, I wasn't saying that he was inauthentic. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah, I I like the character of David Gold. I think that gender stuff happens to, you know, hit my radar in particular. I also wanted to say that I liked how they pointed out that because the Klingon gods are dead, that this wedding doesn't violate any commandment, the, the commandment of you shall have no other god, right. because they don't. They um, killed them all. Yeah, so I thought that was a, a really excellent point to make in terms of how this combination is going to work. And I like the batleths around the chuppa. I just thought, you know, there was there were some really fun touches like that. Yeah, I, I definitely agree with your, your point from before that, like, also the Klingon wedding already has some very chewy vibes to it. Um, you know, smashing those swords into each other doesn't seem quite so far from stomping on the glass. Right. Um, there was one very odd thing about this story that I'm not sure what to do with it. So anybody who, like me, grew up listening to the record album or watching the special of Free to Be You and Me will recognize that the entire Atalanta story was just lifted straight from that and inserted into this story. And I don't really know why. And I'm not sure that the the author was using it in the way that they thought they were using it. They... Atalanta is the nickname that David Gold uses for his wife, mm-hmm. but he seems to be using it in an implication that she's a princess with the implication of being kind of spoiled and demanding. But that's not at all what the Atalanta story means, especially not in this version of the Atalanta story where it's, it's Let you me know, go be free. super feminist story about everybody should be equal and, you know, should just be good friends and not be having power dynamics in their relationships and not be marrying for political reasons. And I mean, I don't know what that story is doing there or why Atalanta was turned into her nickname. It just didn't make very much sense to me. It was fun to recognize this story from my childhood, but I'm kind of confused as to what it was doing there. Mm -hmm. So we read another story, An Easy Fast, and this one's by John Ordover. Uh, It's a short story that appears in... Uh, in this anthology, The Captain's Table, uh, sort of hard to describe, but through an element of more fantasy than than sci-fi, the device of the anthology is that captains through various generations show up at this interdimensional bar at the end of the universe and uh, and drink in exchange for telling stories. Captain Gold tells a story that is... Uh, maybe about him, maybe about a fictionalized him, sort of left ambiguous. He calls him Captain Silver, the character he's he's describing, who's sort of uh, wronged as a young man. Maybe he is or maybe he isn't, um, is killed in a sense by these three aliens, but then is revived by his ship through sheer coincidence and through his life. Uh, begins a quest that that starts as revenge against each of them, but eventually 
does not become revenge against any of them. And I, and I thought this this book had a real moral dimension to it. And uh, like the title would suggest, it's it's taking place while Captain Gold is sitting in this bar but not drinking anything because he is fasting for Yom Kippur. Heidi, what did you think of An Easy Fast? I really enjoyed this one. This one is not as explicitly Jewish as the creative coupling story, but the themes are more Jewish mm-hmm. and they're more thoughtful. David Gold's storytelling in the bar to his audience, it really causes this sort of Talmudic discussion among his listeners of, you know, this group of aliens from all these different planets. And they really are picking his story apart. And afterwards, it was fun for me to pick the story apart. I kind of um, went off and, and ended up doing homework because I wanted to look up like the different levels of forgiveness. Because in this story, he goes to each of these three aliens who killed him. And now he's alive again, but, you know, who he wants revenge because they they stole his money and they cheated him and they tricked him and they killed him. As he goes to each of them, the first one is basically a bald shuva. He has repented. He's changed his life. He's doing good for the world. So he has to he doesn't actually explicitly apologize or ask forgiveness, but silver lets his anger go. He's sort of in a Zen way. He he does forgive him. And then the next guy doesn't actually feel remorse, but he just through chance happens to have turned around and started doing some good things for his community. Mm-hmm. It benefits him too, but it's also benefiting the community. He has ceased sinning. You know, I looked all this up. Um, he, he has ceased sinning and become a, a somewhat of a better person. And he does actually apologize and he offers to make amends, but he hasn't repented so Silver is not obligated to offer him forgiveness, but he does, and he releases his own burden, and he pays it forward by telling this guy to to give the 5% of profits that he was offering to him to not kill him. He says, give that to your workers instead. So he paid it forward. And then the last guy... I, I like that the authors fit in here, make sure you pay your writers higher royalties. Yes, that's right. <laughs> they snuck that in. And then the last guy remains a sinner in every way, and... You know, he's still an evil, terrible person. And it looks like Silver forgave him. So what it, the, the weird thing about him is he's in jail for life. He's basically a slave working in a sewer. But the way this planet works is that um, anybody, they, they can auction off the right to execute these prisoners. So he buys the, the rights to hold life and death of this person in his hands and he thinks now I've got him and I'm going to kill him and I'm going to get my revenge and instead he ends up giving that paperwork to this enslaved person and saying now you have the power to either stay a slave for the rest of your life or die in the manner of your choosing so it's either death or slavery and it's up to you so he has I don't know if that's actually forgiveness or if that's actually revenge. (laughs) So I'm not sure if he actually forgave that guy. You could read it either way. But it was just really interesting because I went and looked up all of these articles about about teshuva and slicha and mechila and all of the different levels and, and permutations about forgiveness and revenge. You know, revenge is forbidden. Does Abraham Silver do teshuva? for holding a grudge by not taking revenge? Or is he actually taking revenge on that last guy? I'm not sure. 
But in all the cases, all three cases, he does discharge the other person's debt against him. Mm-hmm. And then also the Captain David Gold, as the storyteller, is sort of doing some kind of a mitzvah um, because one of his listeners is like there from the future and pursuing himself, maybe from another time stream. It's hard to tell, but he's chasing somebody who's done him wrong. And after the story, he decides to give up on revenge and just go home and return to his family. So maybe Captain Gold did a mitzvah by convincing him to not take revenge. But so there's a lot of really good chewy stuff that you can really get your teeth into with this one. So I I enjoyed it a lot. And I think that this one would be like a good Jewish book group story to look at. Or, you know, it's almost like a Torah study kind of thing. Or it's very similar to, to Harry Potter and the Sacred Text kind of discussion great podcast um, if if anybody's familiar with that podcast it was refreshing to find a a story about yom kippur that felt like true to the themes of the holiday but not the tropes of yom kippur in fiction like there was no like i feel guilty about not doing this thing on the holiday am i jewish enough like this the sort of things that get treaded out over and over in yom kippur and this this seemed like, oh, it's taking one of like the intellectual concepts of Yom Kippur itself uh, and, and playing it out here. Uh, and you're totally right about that Talmudic quality to it. Like it, it, it could read, write like a page of, of, uh, of Talmud with like his core narrative Mishnah in the middle and the commentaries around it. And because of the time travel mechanism of the story, it is receiving a commentary through the ages that doesn't quite make sense with itself. Yes, absolutely. It is nice that it goes outside of those general tropes. Like one of the tropes I'm thinking of is, uh, you know, there's a story called Even Higher, and I have several different versions of that in my library. It gets retold as a picture book over and over. Um, You know, the rabbi who is even higher than the angels, he's, you know, he, he does so much good in the world that he can ascend to heaven um, you know, every Yom Kippur, he just goes for a visit um, because he's done all these good deeds. And so, or, or like the similar stories of the very innocent person, or sometimes it's a child who doesn't know the words to the prayer, so they just play a flute or they say the alphabet or, you know, they do their innocent little thing, but that's what opens the gates of heaven because their purity of heart. So those are nice stories, but it was great to have something very different for a change. Yeah. We talked before about the kinds of books you look for. Uh, I'm wondering, I was going to just ask you about some sci-fi Jewish YA, but I'm also now thinking while I have you here, I I also want to ask your recommendations for the next stage of children's books I'll be buying, which are like the three and four-year-old ones, preferably ones that are tolerable to a parent whose kid will want the same book read to them every day for two months. Okay, well, I, I did make a list of books that I thought your listeners would enjoy, not all necessarily YA, but um, the first one's actually a picture book, and you all should definitely know about the picture book biography, Fascinating, The Life of Leonard Nimoy, by Richard Michelson. That was a Sidney Taylor Book Award silver medalist a few years ago, and it's beautifully done. Rich Michelson was actually friends with Leonard Nimoy. And there's a wonderful photo of the two of them together because even though they're not related, they kind of look like father and son. And um, 
Rich tells the story that he could get restaurant reservations by <laughs> pretending to be Leonard Nimoy's son because he looked enough like him to, to pass. There's a, a YA book that is not sci-fi itself, but it's about going to sci-fi conventions. And this is actually going to be the interview on the Book of Life podcast for August. And the book is Zoe Rosenthal is Not Lawful Good by Nancy Worlin. And it's a, a story with a Jewish protagonist about going to cons and just the whole fandom life. It's hard to find actual sci-fi. I do have a few fantasy-type recommendations. Yeah. So there's a book called Anya and the Dragon and a sequel, Anya and the Nightingale, both by Sophia Pasternak, also silver medalists for the Sydney Taylor Book Award. The reason I talk about that so much is because I'm a past chair of the book award, so I'm still a big promoter of it. And so those are stories that take place back in the Kievan Rus. It's it's like medieval. I don't know if that's actually accurate, if it's Middle Ages or when exactly, but it's many centuries ago in what is now Russia, and it's uh, a Jewish character, and it's dragons. So it's it's just a really interesting combination. I, I heard um, the author of that book on, I think it was on um, Judaism Unbound recently, and it sounds mm-hmm. like such an interesting read. Yes, definitely worth it. Very different. Very, very different. Because it she's a scholar of history, and so she really takes her world building very seriously. Another book I just loved, and this was a gold medalist Sydney Taylor book, and I believe won quite a number of other awards, The Inquisitor's Tale by Adam Gidwitz. Oh, I don't know that one. The story, it's a story about three children and their holy dog. So the dog who has actually come back to life by a miracle. And the children are this sort of mismatched group of kids. There's a a Jewish child, a Christian peasant girl, and a Moorish boy who was raised as a Christian monk. And so they have to learn to get along. And they actually go on this adventure where they need to save Jewish holy books that are going to be burned. So it's a very unusual, not only it's a rollicking adventure story. It has farting dragons, but it also is um, a serious exploration of religion and what religion means in a way that you very rarely see in a children's book. Hmm. Beautifully written. And again, a lot of research went into it. Um, A very recent book that I would like to recommend. And this one, those, that, those last two were more middle grade. This one is more YA. The Way Back by Gabrielle Savit, a dark fantasy kind of in a Neil Gaiman kind of vibe that's in the shtetl, but it's also in the world of demons. Just fascinating. And then there's actually a video. I was going back through past uh, episodes of the Book of Life podcast to kind of jog my thoughts and see what I could recommend for you. And I do want to recommend this video video that you can watch on YouTube. It's called The Last Shepherd, and it is a Hebrew language indie comedy adventure sci-fi fantasy film <laughs> with elements of Jewish mysticism and Kabbalah. I'll give you a link to the to where you can watch that because it's really a lot of fun. Yes. And listeners, I will put all of these books in, in the show notes to this episode. And the, there were a couple of adult books that I just thought I would mention, if you want. Yeah. 
Okay. Uh, so there was a book that I did an interview on this several years ago. There may be a sequel by now. I am not sure. It was called Casper Mutzenmacher's Cursed Hat hmm. by Keith Fenton Miller. It had a, a hat that would take you out of whatever danger you were in, you were in and it would like, transport you elsewhere, which is very useful during the Holocaust. But it, it was very dark and very creepy and, and really fascinating. And then the, there's a book that just now has come out with a sequel after a long wait. So The Gollum and the Ginny now has a sequel, The Hidden Palace, huh. both by, uh, I don't know if it's Helen or Helene Wecker. You know, it's more fantasy, but I think it's the kind of fantasy that sci-fi fans will enjoy. Thanks so much. Um, Heidi, maybe before we go, you can you can tell us a little bit about Book of Life. Oh, I'd be happy to. Thanks for asking. So the Book of Life podcast, I've been doing this since 2005, so for quite a long time. And it's kind of a fresh air type of format. So it's an interview program, and I speak to people who create the kind of things that could be found in a library like mine, a synagogue library. So I talk to authors, illustrators, publishers. Sometimes I also talk to musicians or people who have some kind of a web project or you know other related things like that. Um, in the last few years, I've really drawn the focus to be about Kidlit because that's my main interest mm -hmm. and because I just love it the most. I think what I like about your show is that it's very thoughtful. People, because it is a, a podcast about books and because you are easy to talk to, people really open up. And I think like any any good niche podcast, it goes broader and it it ends up being a podcast about so much more than than the literature in it. And I've been I've been listening to, uh, to some of the recent episodes and I've been really enjoying it. Oh, thank you so much. That's great to hear. Heidi, thank you so much for joining us at Star Trek and the Jews. Live long and prosper. I am so thrilled to be here. I'm a big and I want to say I am a big fan of Star Trek and the Jews. When I discovered it, I was so excited because it's, you know, something I work with and something that I grew up with and just like a meshing of all of my different interests. And so it's wonderful. And I, I always do my Hebrew school homework. <laughs> Thanks. Thanks for listening to part one. And thank you to Heidi Rabinowitz. Our opening fanfare is by Dr. Adam Snyderman. Part two is dropping tomorrow, featuring Josh's interview with three of the authors who brought David Gold to life, 